let me invite you this morning to take your Bibles and join me as we read out of the second gospel, Mark chapter 1. Bob and Claire Holt, who, are, who were former um, charter members of our congregation prior to certainly their death several years ago, Bob and Claire Holt many years ago gave me a book by Robert Seymour entitled Celebrating Christmas as Christians. Bob Seymour was the pastor of the Binkley Memorial Baptist Church in Chapel Hill for a lot of years, 30 plus years. And in that book, there's a very short chapter, and it's entitled The Colors of Christmas. And Robert Seymour says in that brief chapter that many Christians associate certain colors with Christmas, namely reds and greens and golds. But he says, or writes in that book, that the appropriate colors that we should focus on as Christians in Advent as we prepare to celebrate Christmas, the birth of Jesus, are the colors purple and white and flesh tones. Flesh tones. So over the next three Sundays, we're going to look at the colors of Christmas, and we begin today with the color of purple. Purple is a color that symbolizes royalty and the reception of a king, but in this particular text of Mark, it's a color that symbolizes repentance of sin and the forgiveness of sin. So let's read the text together. Chapter 1 of Mark, beginning with verse 1, the beginning. This is how Mark says the good news of Jesus begins, the beginning of the gospel or the good news about Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One, that's what Christ means, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet. Now actually, the writer of Mark really pulls together two Old Testament texts. The first one here is actually from Malachi chapter 3, and then the next verse is from Isaiah chapter 40. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, but it's really Malachi, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. And then from Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water or in water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord, and together let us say, thanks be to God. Well, maybe, just maybe, you think Christmas begins in certain ways. Maybe you think 
that Christmas begins with the angel's announcement of Mary and Joseph trudging their way towards a roomless Bethlehem. Maybe you assume that Christmas begins with the shepherds, and they're out watching and tending their flocks by night. Or maybe you think that Christmas begins with those wise men, the magi, those uh, three men following the star, and for days, weeks, months, it could have even been as long as a year, they finally end up to worship the Christ child. Maybe you believe that, that Christmas really, when you boil it all down to, is about a baby's birth, to a poverty-stricken teenage couple in that remote village of Bethlehem. But that's not what Mark says here in this text. Christmas doesn't begin in the ways that Matthew and Luke's gospel tell us, as they tell us about the dreams of Joseph and Zechariah and Elizabeth and their stories. Mark counts the beginnings of the Jesus movement in a different type of way. For Mark, it's not what happens at the manger. If all we had was Mark's gospel, you wouldn't get a manger. You wouldn't have shepherds and wise men and angels and Mary and Joseph. In Mark's gospel, it's not what happens at the manger that begins this Jesus thing. For Mark, it's hearts that are wrapped in the color purple that begins the Christmas story. The color of repentance and the color of the forgiveness of sin. For Mark, you've got to have some purple. You've got to be wearing that color before you can elbow your way into the crowd surrounding the manger scene. And that purple message is forecast by the great prophets of Israel, like Isaiah and like Malachi, and now it is told and embraced by the last great prophet of Israel that we call John the Baptizer. So from Mark's perspective, before you and I can show up at the manger, we got to put on a little purple. We must wear the color of repentance and the forgiveness of sin. Now, let's start with repentance. What is repentance? What does that mean? Well, the word repentance, metanoia in Greek, means to have a change of heart and a change of mind. It's often accompanied, although not always, it doesn't have to be, with a deep sense of regret or remorse, this idea of sorrow. I wish I had not done what I have done or said. That's what changing your mind, changing your heart Having a sense of repentance is all about. And we change things all the time, don't we? You, you change your minds about a lot of things. You get up one morning, you were going to plan to do something, you change your mind and do something else for the rest of the day. We change jobs. We change majors when we were in college. Thank God a lot of us in this room have finished changing diapers. I don't, I don't miss that any longer. Uh, glad to see my children taking on that task when I go see grandchildren. We even carry a little change in our pockets every once in a while. But that's what the word repentance means. It means that we were going in one direction and we have a change of heart or mind and we return and move back in another direction. From a Christian perspective, we were moving in the direction that we had become and we now change and we move in the direction that God has created us and designed us to be. If you read the New Testament carefully, you'll find about 58 times when the word repentance is used. 
And, and it's kind of interesting because when Jesus uses the word repentance, have a change of heart or change of mind, he doesn't always use it. And this is certainly the case of the early church leaders as you get into the book of Acts and you read Paul. The early church leaders and Jesus often are directing repentance, words of repentance, not towards the known sinners of the day, which would have been the prostitutes and the drunkards and the tax collectors because they were so hated, those folks who took up tax on behalf of Rome. Repentance was not directed towards the known sinners of the day. You know who Jesus directed a lot of his words of repentance to? It was to the religious leaders of the Jewish people and the Jewish people themselves. It was to the preachers and the deacons and the Sunday school teachers that Jesus sent a lot of his words of repentance and to the people of the day. Why, why did Jesus direct these words? Why did John the Baptist direct? It, it says that all of the people went out from the Judean countryside and all of the people of Jerusalem. This is the Jewish people that John the Baptist is talking to. He's not talking to the known sinners of the day. He's talking to his people. Why is he telling them to repent, to change, to have a change of heart and mind? Because he's trying to help prepare them to receive Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. And that's not the type of Savior they're going to be looking for. They were going to be looking for a different type of Savior. They were not expecting one who would be baptizing them, as John said, with the Holy Spirit, creating his rule and his reign, not among the nations of the world, but within human hearts. That's why those words of repentance were coming. You know, if John the baptizer lived right now, if he showed up, let's just say, in our country, here in the state of North Carolina, I want to suggest to you this morning one place that I don't think John the Baptist would go. I don't think he'd be out on the streets with the known sinners of our day either. You know where I think he'd be? I think he'd be right here with you and me inside the church. You want to know who the known sinners are of our day? Well, they are the folks who do and say all of the things that we don't do. But sinners of our day are seldom those folks who do the same thing we do or say for which we conveniently have given ourselves a pass. If John the Baptist were living in 2018, I think he'd be parking himself in one of our pews. I think he'd be showing up even at Oakmont. He might even stand up and interrupt my sermon this morning. I think he'd be making a visit to us, inviting you and me to be thinking about ways we need to be changing our minds, ways we need to be changing our hearts and our ways, our ways of doing and thinking and being, the broken attitudes of our hearts. I think John the Baptist would be sitting right in the middle of our worship services. 
You know, in the year of 2018, I, I preached several sermon series, but two that come to my mind. I started out the year of, the, of 2018 preaching on the seven deadly sins. And then I ended up with in the late summer and into the fall, preached a sermon series on the biblical one another commands. Y'all love one another. Y'all give one another. Be compassionate and kind to one another. Bear one another's burdens, just to name a few of them. You know, I've been observing Christians since I was a child, all the way back to my little home church in Raleigh, my little Baptist church there. So I've had a chance to watch you, and I've had a chance to pay attention to me in my more honest moments. And you know, you and I are really good. We're experts at times in maximizing other people's sins and minimizing our own. We don't mind one bit looking the other way and excusing our own fallen and broken nature that manifests itself just as dangerously as some of the known bigger sins that we want to name in our day. You want to know why people avoid churches or flee the churches? You want to know why there are so many nuns? N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N. But N-O-N-E-S, nuns who claim no religious affiliation in our country. They say they're spiritual. They're the folks who love Jesus but hate the church. You want to know why there's so many duns, not D-U-N-N, but D-O-N-E-S. They're done with church. They're fed up with church. They're not coming back. You want to know why there's so many? Because they've looked at you and me, and they're done with the hypocrisy. They're fed up, and they're moving on. So you and I, we think, this is how we fooled ourselves. Yeah, I've got a little pride in my life. Yeah, I have a little envy at times. Yes, it's true, I have anger at times, or I'm slothful, or I have lust in my heart, or I'm greedy at times and not generous to the work of God's kingdom. Or, yeah, I am prone to gluttony. I just named the seven deadly sins. But God, I know you're looking at the other bigger stuff. You're not looking at this and me. Or you get to the biblical one another's. Well, yeah, God, I do gossip every once in a while or complain or backbite or fail to forgive and love others. Or, yeah, I do love my positions love them more than I love other people. Yeah, it is true sometimes, God. I'm unwilling to keep the unity of God's people in the bond of peace, as Scripture calls me to do. But that's no problem whatsoever, because thank God, He's more focused on the sin of other people than He is on my sin. You see how the evil one, Satan, the devil, whatever you want to call him, has fooled you and me? If I can just point my finger at somebody else's sin that's a lot worse than mine, I can conveniently sweep mine underneath the carpet and ignore it and forget about it. And that's what's happening to our churches, is that we've swept our own failures beneath the carpet. Sin. What is sin biblically? Well, the word means 
that you miss the mark. The mark. You're aiming towards the target, the bullseye, and you miss the mark. I remember when I was a young man, uh, my dad would take me over to his farm in Creedmoor in Granville County, and we'd hunt some, but what I enjoyed almost more than hunting was skeet shooting. He'd take a trap over there and put clay pigeons in it, and he had, we had one that could put two in at one time, and we'd let that, those clay pigeons fly out, and we'd take a double barrel or an over and under Browning shotgun that he had, and we'd shoot clay pigeons. And I'll never forget the first time I shot a shotgun, that kick on it left a bruise on my arm for weeks, it felt like. And it was really fun to get to the point where I could pick off two clay pigeons being pulled at one time. But there were a lot of times early on where I missed the mark, missed the target. And that's what sin is. It's missing the mark. It's missing the target. It's being less than who God created you to be and living into a way of life that acknowledges that it's okay to be less than who God created me to be. John is preaching to the church of his day. And he's telling them, you need to confess your sin. You need to have a repentance, a change of heart of your sin. And he preached a baptism for the forgiveness of sin. You know, you know the Jewish people didn't typically baptize their own folks. They only baptized converts to the Jewish faith. If you converted to Judaism, that's when you got baptized. You, but if you grew up Jewish, you didn't have to have baptism. John is giving them a baptism that reminds them that they need to wear the color purple. They need to confess and name and acknowledge their sin. John the Baptist was on the same page as the Apostle Paul in Romans 3.28 when Paul writes, For all have sinned. All have failed to hit the mark. All have missed the target and have fallen short of the glory of God. Paul didn't write 50% have sinned or 25 or even 75 or 90. It says all. And that means you. And it means me. Every one of us have failed to live up to whom God has called us to be. You know, I read this just this past week. I read somewhere, someone was writing, they said that in the history of the church, that whenever revival has broken out among God's people, it does not typically happen first with the folks who are far from God and need to be in a saving relationship with Jesus. In other words, it doesn't happen first with the known sinners of the day. You know where it begins? Revival? It begins when it breaks out inside the church with God's people who fall on their knees in brokenness and confession, just like in John, ba John the Baptist's day. It says, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the River Jordan. Folks, we need some confession. We need some changing of hearts and minds, some repentance. We need to seek God's forgiveness. And that means simply that when God forgives us, that word forgiveness means that he lets it go. He remembers it no more. He sends it away. Maybe that's why Mark begins this gospel by saying the beginning 
of the good news about Jesus. And then he tells about people coming to confess their sin, to be baptized, to repent, to find their, that forgiveness. You see, you can't show up at the manger before you've embraced what Mark says is wearing the color purple. If you're one of those people who look around at all that's happening in our world today and you ask the question, what in the world is this world coming to? Then maybe you need to rephrase that question and ask yourself, what in the world am I coming to? Because you see, the fact is we need to stop excusing those places in our life where we individually have failed to hit the target that God has set for us. And we need to understand that any celebration of Jesus' first coming is sorely impoverished until we confess, repent, change our hearts and minds, live into our baptism that symbolizes an inner change and transformation, and receive his forgiveness and pardon. Folks, perhaps now more than ever, we need to wear the color of purple before Christmas arrives.